scripture this morning comes from Romans 8 and from Romans 12. This is the word of the Lord. There is, therefore now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated. Well, it is really good to see you this morning, and I'm excited to get into these two uh, passages. A couple of great passages. We've been working through a series called Worshiping Church, and then taking a, a few weeks to look at liturgy as it relates to worship. How does liturgy form us in the gospel, form us in the good news of Christianity? And I actually have a, an introduction that I'm going to sort of set aside. Um, I, I've gotten the sense as, as I was coming in this morning, one of the things I often feel on a, just an ordinary sort of uh, you know, Sunday in the summer, especially one like July 4th, where maybe 30, 40, 50 percent of the people are out of town or traveling. Uh, you know, it's maybe a smaller gathering. I often feel like, man, I don't know that this is my best sermon. You know, there are weeks where I come in like this one is the one. Like if I'm vanilla ice, this is my ice ice baby. This is my gift to the world. But there are other weeks when I'm like, I think it's okay. I'm not sure if it's done, but I think it's close enough. And I think there's a, a temptation in all of us when, when it just feels like an ordinary moment, an ordinary Sunday, an ordinary morning or afternoon to, to almost think a little bit less of what God might do, can do, and wants to do. And so I was thinking and, and praying this morning, I just wanted to, to acknowledge a few things that God, God in His presence is no less with us now than on any other Sunday, however big or however small. That God's extraordinary presence often breaks through where we least expect it. And so, just kind of in praying for you guys this morning, I want to recognize maybe some of you are, are tired, discouraged, burnt out. Maybe some of you are, are, are flying high and you're, you're able to just enjoy this morning. Maybe others of you are, are struggling in a key relationship. Maybe you're physically sick or, or wrecked by depression or anxiety. And I think you're in a good place here. I think this is the right place for you to be right now. And so as I, as I get into this text, and I want to pray, but I want to ask, what is it that you want this morning? What is it that, that you might need to hear from the Lord this very morning? And so I want to pray and invite the Holy Spirit to to fill this, this ordinary moment with his extraordinary presence. 
Father God, we are so grateful that you are such a good and wonderful Father. You not only call us servants, but you call us children of God, heirs with Christ, and you, you fill us with your very own spirit. Lord, and you continue to, to work in our hearts and our lives, and you continue to work in Trinity in a way that is so staggeringly beautiful. God, we thank you and we praise you and we love you not just for what you do for us, but for who you are. That knowing everything about us, knowing all that you know about us, you continue to choose us still and love us still. Lord, where we are weak, would we be strong in you? Where we are discouraged, would you speak comforting and encouraging words to our souls? Where we're overwhelmed, would you give us your peace this morning? Help us to understand the dynamics of forgiveness that we might, we might feel the power of being free in you and may that power lead us to sing and pray as your very children. We pray this in your son's name, amen. All right, now, as I said, we are doing a sort of mini-series on liturgy and today is the third movement in the most glorious movement, which is the forgiveness of our sin and what we call the assurance of pardon, the knowledge that, that we have been forgiven. And so I've got three things for today, the cost of forgiveness, the assurance of pardon, and then the joy of the forgiven. So the first thing is, is the cost of forgiveness. And I say cost because in the Bible, forgiveness is often described in terms of a debt. You can think of the Lord's Prayer where Jesus teaches us to pray, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. When Jesus was asked how many times we should forgive one another, he told a parable about a great king who was owed an enormous debt and, and a servant who was owed a small debt. And throughout the scriptures, debt and forgiveness are tied to one another. And, and it makes sense. If somebody has wronged you, there is a debt to be paid. If somebody has hurt you, they, they need to make you whole again. They need to restore you. They need to, to pay or fulfill that debt that they have created against you. But Tim Keller has defined forgiveness as giving up the right to seek repayment from the one who harms you. It must be recognized that forgiveness is a form of voluntary suffering. And so maybe an illustration would help. Say, I, uh, you know, I come over to your house for dinner, my wife and I, our three boys, we come over, we have a, a great dinner around your table, and then, you know, we offer to help you clean up as we're carrying the dishes back to the kitchen, I, you know, I knock one of your plates off by accident and it, and it hits the ground and, you know, breaks into, you know, a dozen pieces. Uh, immediately, I'm going to want to say, I'm so sorry, you know, it was an accident. Uh, I'm going to make it up to you. I'm going to get you a new plate. I could Venmo you like $8 or whatever. And you might say, hey, don't worry about it. It's just a plate. We got it at Ikea. It's the Swiss Gottskin or whatever. It was like $1.50. But what happens if, if you're just forgiving the debt that I owe you, you're actually absorbing the cost of the debt yourself. So the debt doesn't just disappear, the, the plate doesn't just reappear, but instead, if you forgive it and say, don't worry about it, you're actually bearing the cost yourself. Whether it's a tangible or an intangible thing, every act of forgiveness, every, every act of justice, there's, there's a debt that's being paid or a debt that's being settled. 
Now in Psalm 51, David has sinned greatly against Bathsheba and her husband. And he prays this, against you, against you only God have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And so you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. And so David is acknowledging that his sin against others is primarily a sin against God, that he's not discrediting that he's hurt and he's, he's harmed and he's abused these other people, killed this other person. But in his mind, he recognizes that all sin is first and foremost a sin against God, and therefore we are in debt to God for every single sin that we commit. He goes on to say, Lord, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. We read this earlier in the confession. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. And so my sacrifice, O oh God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. And so David knows, I mean, in the Old Testament, the, the official system of atonement or of being made right with God, it was the sacrificial system, and yet David is picking up on this element that he hasn't just sinned against God in this transactional sense where now an animal has to die, but he has grieved the very heart of God. And so the right response is not only the, the sort of official process of forgiveness, but it's also to turn his heart back to God, to, to express with great remorse that, that he has caused God hurt and grief, and so he too is contrite and broken in spirit, and that is his offering before God. Now, many times I, I was thinking of this throughout the week, how much uh, the concept of shame shows up in the scriptures, especially related to forgiveness. You know, I think it would be easy for, for someone to look at this passage, Psalm 51, and say, well, David shouldn't feel shame. You know, it's, it, shame is always a bad thing. He needs to just release that. When in reality, I think the Bible gives us a little bit more nuanced view of shame. It presents us with an idea that there is such a thing as good shame or gentle shame, which is the experience of knowing that you have wronged somebody and that you need to make it right. And so David is, is experiencing a type of shame that's actually a, a good shame that will lead him back with a broken and contrite heart before God. So the, the experience of guilt is the awareness that we have done something wrong. The experience of shame is the, is the acknowledgement that something is deeply broken within me. And that's something that's not a popular message in our world. And even though we're in Christ, it's still true of us that there is still sin and brokenness, brokenness within us. And so we can bring that before God. And the very moment that we do, he forgives us. And there's no more shame. Psalm 34 says, uh, those who are forgiven, uh, how does it go? Blessed are those who are forgiven. Their, their faces are no longer covered in shame. Those who look to him are radiant. It's this beautiful picture of having all of our shame stripped away that we're freed by forgiveness from the weight of both guilt and shame. Now in our world, the reason shame is sort of a popular topic right now in books and podcasts and movies, it's because there is so much bad shame, toxic shame in our world. I don't think it's a stretch to say that the average person in our culture is living with a low grade, below the surface level of toxic shame all the time. From, from heavy expectations that they couldn't live up to. 
from things that they did against others that they've never been forgiven for, from, from things that are said over them over and over and over again. And I want to acknowledge that this is one of the primary schemes of the enemy. I mean, I'm sorry to go a little bit supernatural on you and, and spiritual warfare on you, but this is one of the primary, like this is one of the devil's greatest hits. He knows that if he can keep you in shame, he can keep you from feeling your forgiveness in Christ. If he can keep you in shame, then he can keep you from feeling his love, from living as a beloved child of God. And so all day, every day, I don't know if you experience this, but I do, there are messages of shame that you are not worthy, you are not enough, you need to prove yourself, you need to get it together. And all of that can be from the devil. Now it's our forgiveness in Christ that sets us free from this shame as well. Let's go to Romans 8, our first passage. Paul says, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What a powerful line. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. In verse 4, he goes on to say that the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in Christ. Now, the righteous requirement of the law, what that's referring to is our, our need to fulfill the entire law, to, to not break his law, to, to put God first and everything, to obey him, to trust him fully. And so the righteous requirement of the law is our obligation to follow God in everything. Now, I think every one of us could say that we have not kept the entire righteous requirement of the law. And what Paul's actually saying is that the law was powerless to do to set you free from the law of sin and death because it was weakened by the flesh. And so the question is, how do we fulfill this righteous requirement of the law, this, this need for perfection before God? Well, it says right in verse 3 that God did this for us by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. So I know we go over this every single week, but we have to do it again to recognize what the Christian gospel says for us. That Jesus came to earth to seek and save sinners. He was born of a woman. He was fully human so that he could fully represent people like us. And yet he never sinned. He fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law. And though he was fully human, he was also fully God, so he could stand in God's presence. He could represent us in the throne room of God, being fully human and fully man. And having fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law, our sin is no longer held against us. But even more, he goes to the cross for our sin. See, there's no forgiveness without the pain of a debt. That's exactly what the cross is. It's Jesus going to his own death to pay for the penalty of our sins. The wages of sin is death. The Father receives the payment for the sins. Our sin has been transferred onto Christ and is buried in the grave. And with his resurrection, Christ's righteousness is transferred to us. And his resurrection, it's not just that the law of, of sin and death is sort of canceled or it's set aside, or, or it's not like Jesus has just died for the past sins. Jesus' death and resurrection, it just doesn't cancel out all the bad, all the sin and death. 
Instead, it, it conquers it completely. I mean, it, it overcomes it. It, it. it goes into the very heart of sin and death and destroys it from within so that in his resurrection, all things now are becoming new. It says Jesus condemned sin in the flesh so that those who live, live according to the Spirit. So all of this is what we believe and what we rehearse every day that we are forgiven. We are forgiven in Christ. On top of all of this, he gives us his very own spirit as a seal and guarantee of our salvation. And so the second thing is the assurance of our pardon. Assurance of pardon is, is the formal name for this movement of liturgy that's been around for almost 2,000 years. And an assurance, you can remember, it means a deep knowledge that something's true. And assurance is, is knowing without doubt, without a question, that you have been pardoned, you have been set free, your sins are no longer held against you. Now, I've never paid off a house, I hope to, one day, but I've paid off a couple cards, and I love when you get the letter in the mail, maybe you've experienced this, when it says, congratulations, your debt has been paid in full. There are no more payments to make. The, the name of the title is completely yours. There is nothing left for you to do. The debt has been cleared. It's wiped away. We, we resign our right to come and take the car in case you're not making payments because the payments have been made. And literally what that is is an assurance of pardon so that if the bank called and said, you know, where's your $200? You could say, I have this assurance of pardon. It has been paid in full. There's nothing left that I have to give. Now last weekend, Jesse read my sermon on confession, the one that I preached last Sunday. She often reads it ahead of time. And she said, you know, what, what happens though when we confess our sins, when we do bring our sins before God, and yet we struggle to feel forgiven? You know, if we, if we are honestly bringing our sins before Christ, if we're going to Him in confession, yet we just struggle to feel and to believe that we are forgiven. And so she was like, could you speak to that? And I was like, well, that's next week. You know, that's forgiveness. That goes in the, the next week. Yeah, that's a big topic, so we're going to put it in next week's passage. And then I ran up to my office and scribbled down, like, okay, I need to talk about this. That was cool. Like, Man, this is going to preach. But it's true, I think so many of us, we have this, this deep fear that we won't be forgiven, that our past sins will come back, that we'll get into the presence of God and He'll say, away from me, I never knew you. Perhaps we just struggle to know that, that even if God has forgiven me, that He also loves me. Some of these verses in the scriptures that he, that he sings over us, that he delights in us, that those can ring hollow in our ears. We might know on a certain level that we've been forgiven, that we have an assurance of pardon, but it hasn't yet reached our hearts. And if you find yourself in this place, then the assurance of pardon could become the highlight of your week. To hear over and over, to have your, your church family speak over you in assurance of pardon that your sins are forgiven, go and sin no more. You're, you're free. The balance has been paid in full. There's nothing left to pay. See, Romans is so helpful at helping us understand the clarity of the gospel. 
But I think it's actually the, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that, that don't just explain how we're saved, but they demonstrate and they, they teach and they show us Jesus' Jesus's encounters with people in a way that gives us an imagination for salvation. There's a retired pastor named Scotty Smith, and he's written, you can know the lyrics of the gospel and still not hear the music. And so I often think of Romans, which I absolutely love, and the letters of Paul as, as the lyrics of the gospel, and yet it's possible to hear them and not feel the music. And I think when we look to the life of Jesus and his teachings, we feel the music. Think of the prodigal son, this parable that Jesus taught to show what God is like. A son takes his share of the inheritance early, he goes off to a distant country, he, he spends it all in, in reckless living, he comes to the very end of himself, and he knows his only choice is, is death or going home, and so he finally returns home. In that moment, it says the father is waiting for him, has been waiting for him, for him. and when he sees him off at a distance, he goes running towards him, he throws the family robe on him, and he calls for a feast in honor of his son. He says, my son, my child was lost, but now he's found. I think also of the story of Zacchaeus, who is the tax collector, the, the thief, the villain, and just one meal with Jesus totally transforms his life. And when he, when he pledges to restore people and to give his life to Christ, Luke 19, Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house. Because this man, too, is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. If I can give you another one, you may know that in the ancient world, the, the anointing of a king was a huge deal. So every king, before they began their reign, they were anointed by typically the most significant person other than the king in that culture. And so in 1 Samuel, we see that when David is made king, it's Samuel, the, the great righteous prophet who comes and anoints David with oil as the true king of Israel. So you might ask, well, the New Testament presents Jesus as our eternal king. Who anointed Jesus? We actually see it in a scene in Luke 7. It was the sinful woman who broke into the Pharisees' party, broke the jar of perfume and poured it on Jesus' feet, washing his feet with her tears. Literally, that is the anointing of the king. This woman was Jesus' choice for his anointing. To the crowd, he affirms her. He speaks this word over her. I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever loves, whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. And then he turns to the woman and says, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And what that is, is an assurance of pardon. Your faith has saved you, and then just because it's Jesus, a blessing for the road, go in peace. See, everything in our world tells us that we have to earn it, we have to prove it, we have to defend ourselves. And there's not an ounce of that in the life of Jesus. There's not a line of it anywhere in Romans. It's sheer and wild and unpredictable grace just lavished on us from the Father's throne. And the first movement of grace is always forgiveness. You are forgiven. 
the debt has been paid. As Stephen Curtis Chapman, an old Christian singer, wrote, that theoretical grace is only good for theoretical needs. But Jesus has come to set the actual prisoners free. I don't know if you expected Stephen Curtis Chapman this morning, but it's 1993 and he is a lot more than It's not just being forgiven that sets us free, it's the assurance of that pardon that allows us to actually dwell in freedom, to feel the freedom that we have in Christ. Now here's the last thing, the joy. The joy of the forgiven. Romans 12 says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Now, of course, you know whenever somebody says, therefore, they're referring to something that they've already said. And what Paul is doing here in chapter 12, verse 1, is saying, therefore, and he's referring to all the 11 chapters that have come before it. It's a turning point in the book from the theological to the practical. And he says, therefore, in view of God's mercy, which is basically a short summary of all the first 11 chapters of Romans, He's saying because of this incredible mercy, because there's now no condemnation, in view of this incredible, the riches of salvation, here's what's next. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is your act of worship. It's because of God's mercy offered in Christ, the the forgiveness of your sins that you're made whole in Him, and you can give Him your whole life, your whole heart, your whole mind, your whole body, your blessings and challenges, your resources and relationships, we offer it all up to God. And it kind of starts to sound like Psalm 51, that that God doesn't ask us for more offerings and sacrifices. That whole system is done with. Jesus was the once-for-all sacrifice. But now our sacrificial offering to God is our worship, giving ourselves wholly to Him, Mind, soul, heart, body, strength. And it's hardly an act of submission because it's absolutely the best thing for us. To give ourselves away completely to God is the most freeing thing we can do. Because when you see yourself as deserving of judgment and damnation, but you see the glory of Christ and the forgiveness that you have through His sacrifice, it, it transforms your heart and it, and it really begins to fuel worship. Forgiveness is one of the great fuels of worship. Immediately our heart is full of God's praise and we can't help but express it back to Him. That's what worship is. That's our act of worship that's good and pleasing to God. There's a line from John 4 that we looked at a couple weeks ago. Jesus said to the, to the sinful woman who had had five husbands, He said, A time is coming and is now coming when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. And here's the line of, of love this summer. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father sees. And so over and over, I just keep coming back to God is seeking worshipers. True worshipers in the spirit and in truth, God wants you to worship him because it's the best possible thing for you. 
It brings him glory, but it's also the thing that brings your whole life together, that centers it, that roots you in his grace. When we're so full of joy in the Lord that it's expressed through true and living worship. See, God is seeking you. If you're here, it's because God is seeking you. Yes, I've said that before, and I'll say it again. It's already in next week's sermon. It's all I've got so far, but it's in there. God is seeking you. God delights in you. He doesn't just forgive you because he has to, because of a covenant, but the covenant exists to demonstrate his love for you. He's seeking you. He's searching you out. And that's the point of the parables, to go back to Jesus' teachings again. Matthew 13, there's this line, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in the field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy he went and sold all that he had and bought that field. Another one's like it from Luke 15, a woman with ten coins lost one. It says she basically turned her house upside down. She swept it all out until she found the lost coin. And it says that she called her friends to come over and have a feast with her because her coin of great value had been found. Now on the surface of these sort of kingdom lost coin parables, the quickest reading is to say that the kingdom of God is the treasure that we find and we give up everything else that we might gain this kingdom, and that's true. But the deeper meaning, the, what I believe is the real meaning of all these parables, it's that God is looking to get his treasure back. That God has a, a, a coin of great uh, worth, a, a pearl that he's lost, a son that has gone to a far-off distance. There's treasure hidden in a field, and he's searching, and he's seeking, and he's trying to get it back. And when he finds it, he delights at it, and he calls this feast. What I had was lost, but I have found it once more. God is the one who has found his treasure, and you are the treasure. Like, we are the treasure. We are the thing that God had lost. In our sin, he lost us. He created us for relationship, but because of our sin, he lost us. And then in Jesus, he comes to get us back. It literally cost him everything. It cost him the life of his own son. He had to give up everything that he might get back his treasure. And we are the treasure. It's almost too much. It, it, it makes my head want to explode that we are the treasure that he is seeking. And he sends his son to get us back. The message of Romans is that you are no longer condemned by your sins. That God knows every wrong action, every wrong thought, every wrong motivation of your heart, past, present, and future, and he chooses you anyway. Because all of that has been wiped away by the death of Jesus. He knows what he's getting in you, and he's happy with it. Do you believe that? Like, he knows what he's getting in you, and he still chooses you anyway. And so as Romans says, worship, worship God with all your heart, all your mind, all your strength, bring your entire life before God in worship. And in the message of the Gospels, God is seeking worshipers. He's seeking you out, he's searching every one of us, he's searching for people in our city that might worship him. 
He longs to find us. He longs to bring us back home. You are his treasure. You are his beloved. So worship. Worship. Let's pray.